Hello and welcome to today's event on the role of satellite technology in the green transition. My name is Dave Keating. I'm coming at you live from the heart of the EU quarter. We're going to be talking about what some of those images you were just watching in the introductory video mean for the energy transition. Now, when we think about green technologies, we usually think about solar panels, windmills, heat pumps, electric cars, but satellites floating in orbit may not immediately come to mind. But in fact, satellite technology is being used to effectively and strategically support and monitor efforts to combat climate change, particularly in Europe. Earth observation through the EU's Copernicus satellite program will be key for monitoring climate change and supporting climate mitigation and adaptation measures. For instance, satellite technology enables efficient land use and planning, forest and water management, and contributes to monitoring of erosion and fire risk. It's key for surveillance of environmental crime, detecting oil spills, and monitoring the marine environment, including sea levels and sea ice coverage, as well as locating marine plastics. And you could see in that introductory video some of the changes over time that satellite observation is able to monitor, both when it's looking at mitigation efforts and also adaptation challenges as we're seeing the effects of climate change take its toll. So today we're going to talk about what the experience with satellite data as an enabler for the green transition has been so far, and we'll discuss how the development of European satellite technology could increase our potential to reach the objectives of the European Green Deal, while also contributing to increased resilience and security and strengthening Europe's position in the space field. We've assembled an excellent panel of policymakers and experts in the field. I will introduce them now. We have with us Laurence Monnier-Smith, Head of Sustainable Development at the Centre National d'Etudes Spatiales, CNES. We have Ole Morten Olsen, Director for Business Development and Innovation at the Norwegian Space Agency. We have Wendy Carrara, Senior Manager for Digital and European Institutions at Airbus Defence and Space. We have Harold Aro, Head of Space and Surveillance at the Königsberg Defense and Aerospace. And we have Anna Samso, Deputy Head of the Unit for Innovation, Startups and Economics at DG DEFIS in the Commission. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Now, you guys are going to be able to ask your questions to the panelists, whether you're joining us online or you're here in the room. If you're here in the room, you've got a QR code on your seat. You can scan that, and that'll take you to Slido, where you can put in your questions. I'll see them here in my tablet, and I'll ask them to the panelists later on in the event. And if you're watching online, you'll see a space for you to put in your questions. You can go ahead and start putting in questions now if you already know what you'd like to ask the panelists, and I'll put those questions to them later on in the discussion. Uh, but Laurence, I'd like to start with a question for you. Mm -hmm. um, so we saw you know, some examples there in the video of what satellites can show us in terms of time lapse. Um, how, in general, can satellites contribute to the fight against climate change, uh, particularly when, as I mentioned, maybe it's not the first thing people think of when they think of tools to fight climate change? Yeah, I know. I think we, we know that it's not in the mind of everybody that we have been using satellite for quite a long time in order to uh, not only monitor, but to, to gain access to knowledge about the Earth system, Earth. 
I think people don't necessarily know that in order to be able to modelize and to know how the climate is changing, uh, scientists have developed uh, algorithms and they have developed um, uh, an intensive knowledge of how systems interact. And for that, um, they, have, um, they have what they call the essential climate variables. Uh, which help them to understand uh, how the, the carbon cycle, the, uh, the, the, the amount of um, uh, gas that we, have, um, uh, that we have in the atmosphere, the, amount, the evolution of uh, uh, the quantity of water on land, or what you have mentioned earlier. All those are climate variables. In order to modelize the system Earth, uh, we need to have an intensive and a lot of dat data on a long time about these different variables. And half of those variables are only um, documented from space. Meaning that we don't know, uh, without all these new instruments, we wouldn't have all this knowledge about the, how the climate is evolving. So that's one thing very, um, very important for everybody to know. And that's how Copernicus is actually also uh, giving some data to scientists and how we share them at the international level. And Copernicus is playing an important role there. Apart from that, this is for knowledge. Apart from that, uh, satellites, instruments uh, that are placed uh, on, the, on the various satellites are also uh, playing a role into uh, adaptation, not only knowledge, mitigation, but also adaptation, and give us important and specific data about how we can, uh, how we have to adapt locally, uh, giving us, and I will talk about this later, about the Space for Climate Observatory, for example, but giving us uh, data that will, able, that will uh, enable uh, local authority to plan ahead and adapt to the evolution of climate concerning water, uh, coastal areas, or urban heat planning, for instance, and other uh, deforestation, fires, all the different topics you mentioned earlier. So uh, this is uh, one of the most um, uh, accurate, um, most important thing we're working on now is how we use all these uh, enormous amount of data that we have accumulated through uh, years, and especially Copernicus that data, but not only. Um, and we can also use some in-situ data uh, or socioeconomic data, and all with that we can help give up and give some operational tools to um, local decision maker about how we, we need to adapt. Yeah, that's really the trick, isn't it? Because there's so much data being generated yeah. by the satellites, it's knowing uh -huh. how to sift through it, how to use exactly. it in the most effective way. Yeah. Um, Ola Morten, let's turn to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about the Norwegian experience here. What is Norway doing in this area, and particularly at the Norwegian Space Agency? Uh, so, uh, as uh, I already mentioned, uh, we are also part of the uh, European uh, space programs and also the Copernicus program, uh, and that's uh, the main pillar in the Norwegian uh, climate uh, satellite related uh, activities. So we have a national program for uh, developing services for, from Copernicus. Uh, and uh, this is uh, for governmental use. Uh, and it's uh, now covering a lot of the different parts of the government. So I will uh, mention a few of them. Uh, so we have, uh, for example, uh, an INSAR, uh, which are looking on uh, displaced, displacement uh, on the surface of the ground. Uh, so we can look uh, if there is something happening with the groundwater or erosion. Uh, and that uh, has been running in Norway, in Norway for four years. And now it's extended to the whole Europe through the European Union. 
so that's one example. Uh, another example that all the glaciers in Norway is monitored uh, from satellite now. Uh, so uh, there was a new uh, glacier map which was uh, published last year, and it's uh, a lot of smaller glaciers now which have disappeared in the last 10 years in Norway, and uh, also from uh, yeah from the weather and from the uh, yeah climate data from the satellites, we know that uh, in the area where I come from, in the northern part of Norway, the winter is now about 30 days shorter than it was 30 years ago. So we can see that uh, things is happening. I will also mention one uh, specific Norwegian initiative. So we have uh, an initiative in Norway called NICVI. It's the Norwegian International Climate Forest Initiative. Uh, and uh, this initiative uh, we try to do something which is not done uh, uh, through our, the European space programs we are part of. So Norway have put out a contract which uh, was won by KSAT uh, together with uh, Airbus and Planet for high resolution data for looking uh, after the rainforest. Uh, so this means that the uh, countries which is in the rainforest zone can get access to this data and they can use it for their purpose. So they are used for monitoring that they can get uh, money from this international fund if they preserve the rainforest, but it can also use for other purposes for uh, social development and uh, yeah, different things which uh, benefit these societies in these areas. Yeah, a lot of different applications there. Um, Wendy, a lot of different, I mean, what's, what's very exciting, I think, about this is all the different technologies that are being uh, developed. And at Airbus, I know you're working on a number of these things. Tell us a little bit about what technologies are being used right now and what might be possible, what's being developed for the future. Sure, and I mean, it's really exciting to see the capabilities that, that we have. And uh, I would answer that in, in three different steps. The first step is if you look at the payload, so actually what is available on the satellite, whether it's an optical or a radar uh, sensor and what can be seen. And there's been immense progress in the resolution and in the types of measurements that can be done on different variables. So that is one immense part. And we've heard about the increase in data being available. So there's clear um, progress on that. And in that respect, from the infrastructure part, which would be the second part, how is it that we downlink this data from the satellite? Because if you have something in space, let's say it's 620 kilometers above Earth, how do you make sure that the data comes back down to Earth at the right moment, in the right level of quality, for the right processing on the ground? And there, on the infrastructure part, there's been, whether it's the space data highway or laser communication terminals on board the satellites, but also all the processing which is done on the ground segments that enables high-quality tasking of satellites. If I think, for instance, of our Earth observation satellites, how is it that you benefit from the latest weather conditions to program the satellite to acquire images over an area up until 20 minutes or so before it passes over a point of interest? And how do you get the data back immediately? And that's the digital backbone of the operations of the satellites. And it feels a bit like in a science fiction movie. You can actually program the satellite now from a smartphone. So it's becoming even more pervasive and simple to, to use. And from a technological standpoint, the third axis I would like to delve into is really about the processing capabilities to say, if you have this like huge flow of data, how do you deal with it and what do you do with it? How do you process it and how do you make it relevant? And it's about deriving the insights and having the right, let's say, cloud infrastructure, but also the right 
machine learning techniques, the right experts, the right ground data sometimes to validate models and such. And all of that will, I would say, from a technological standpoint, create an immense momentum to, let's say, connect the space, the digital, and the green, because the green is really going to be the area where it's the most impactful, I believe, for our citizens to see how technology and space is actually transforming how we understand our planet. I mean, we've had examples, for instance, from, from Norway on NICFI or from other variables of the planet, uh, whereby you understand the dynamics of change. And to some extent, this technology gives us immense power to model what-if scenarios as well. And uh, in terms of examples, uh, perhaps on the technology I was mentioning, the sensors, to, to finish on that as well, if I look at Earth observation sensors, there's a new spectral band. So imagine that you have new filters on which you can work uh, with on the different images, and that can be crucial in understanding the different parameters of vegetation to understand the health, the moisture of the soils and of the plants and the overall biodiversity ecosystems around that. It's interesting what you say about the modeling of what-if scenarios. We'll come back to that a little bit in the discussion. Um, Harold, let's turn to you next. When we're looking at how satellite technology can specifically deliver on targets, we, of course, have targets here at the European level, but there are international targets as well. How is satellite data being used as an enabler to reach the UN ESG targets and the green transition in general? <clears throat> yes, I think satellite data is uh, uh, quite important in getting the situational awareness. So uh, are we tracking towards the targets that we have set? Uh, and secondly, are we complying with the rules and regulations that we, uh, we have set? So uh, by using uh, the satellite data, you can, uh, uh, for instance, with spectrometers and things, measure the level of greenhouse gases. Um, you can measure uh, how the ice melting is uh, accelerating or receding. So you get that understanding, are the actions that we have taken, the decisions we are taking, is that taking us in the right direction? So you can make uh, the, the right decisions in terms of, uh, of doing the right things there. Uh, secondly, important on situational awareness is, uh, are we actually complying with it? So when we say that uh, so, uh, we should reduce uh, carbon emissions or we should uh, comply with the regulations, we can, uh, it was mentioned here, the NICFI. So that's where we're analyzing pictures uh, that uh, analyzes how forest is, uh, uh, is being reduced. But we can also identify illegal logging, uh, illegal mining, uh, we deliver uh, services globally for oil spill detection. Uh, we can go for illegal fishing. So uh, environmental crimes where either countries, companies or people are breaching the decisions that has been taken to take us to, to, to the targets we want to be. Uh, these things are most efficiently done by satellite uh, data. Um, so uh, the technologies that was uh, mentioned here is uh, it's incredibly important to, to mix the right payloads, the right instruments. Uh, but the, the planet is uh, quite big. Uh, and if you want to measure things with a high resolution over a big area, it starts to get expensive. I, I think the good news is that these costs are coming down quite uh, rapidly. We see it both in launch cost, in, in instruments, technology is taking us forward. 
uh, and, and, but still there will be expensive programs uh, to be able to get the full situational awareness. But I think if you compare with other solutions, if you try to measure these things from planes or from ships, and uh, you, you buy a plane with a crew, with fuel or every, and everything, that's typically more expensive. So I think this is a very cost-efficient way in uh, guiding us into taking the right decisions and also making sure that the countries and people that are obliged to, uh, to follow these regulations actually do. Yeah, it's an interesting point about the expense, and of course that takes funding. Uh, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about government commitment to uh, this type of observation, particularly when it comes to monitoring environmental crimes. Um, Anna, let's turn to you next. What has the EU been doing in this area, and how effective has the EU's Copernicus, Europe's Copernicus satellite program, been? Well, the EU has been doing a lot, uh, and Copernicus uh, was mentioned already, I think, by all uh, panelists. But I think it's, it's important to stress that EU has something that is unique. Uh, it has EU space program with uh, satellite constellations, and it's not only Copernicus for Earth observation, it's also Galileo, it's EGNOS. And uh, soon we will have a new constellation, the Secure Connectivity, uh, called IRIS, the political agreement uh, between the co-legislators to build this constellation was reached, I think, one week ago. It's very fresh. But this will provide Europe with additional opportunities uh, in the area of secure connectivity, among others. But turning back to Copernicus, uh, because I think this is uh, the uh, constellation that helps us uh, most in implementing uh, the green transition and the green deal. It has been a very good success um, to start with the basics, eight satellites, thousands of sensors, 16 terabyte data generated daily, and six streams of data delivery uh, in um, atmosphere, climate change, maritime land, uh, security, and uh, emergency services. And um, based on that, on this data that is delivered daily, We've seen in the last years the emergence of an entire ecosystem of uh, uh, companies. We call them new space, a little bit to uh, maybe um, give them a label to uh, identify them um, as, as the new players in the space ecosystem because the well-established uh, uh, companies, which are also represented here today, um, have been long-standing uh, and present in the ecosystem delivering services. But the new space companies, they take the data um, where we, uh, since years, uh, apply the open data policy, and they develop <coughs> applications that help develop um, technologies and help to implement the political objectives of the Green Deal. You may be aware that the, under this commission, following the adoption of the um, climate law, um, all the legislation related to energy and climate is being <coughs> revised. So we will have, um, let's say, new, completely new regulatory framework uh, related to energy, in particular clean uh, energy, renewable energy, energy efficiency of buildings, uh, climate change related. And in all these areas, clean transport and so uh, clean technological processes to make our industry uh, um, transfer or transit uh, towards uh, the climate neutral economy in all these areas uh, the earth observation data will play a role 
I think we will talk probably later about uh, user cases, uh, but I think uh, the main um, areas have been already mentioned, um, agriculture, forestry, energy, uh, transport, and many others. Laurence, earlier you mentioned the Space Climate Observatory. Tell us a little bit more about what that is and how it's contributing to the fight against climate change. Yeah, well, it will allow us to come back on use case because this is pr precisely what it is. Well, at CNES, we have a long tradition about uh, using data for, uh, to, fight, to fight climate change and to use this data to uh, develop some uh, specific application. And uh, since the Jason Serine altimetry, for instance, uh, measuring uh, coastal erosion and the elevation of uh, the elevation of the sea and the impact on the coastline, for instance. Uh, the Space for Climate Observatory has been launched uh, in 2017 during the One Planet Summit. It's an international initiative among space agencies who wanted to gather uh, at that time to, to make sure that all the data that we have, thanks to the European Commission policy and, uh, and, um, and thanks to uh, this, um, the, 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 different, uh, the different data we have, apart from Copernicus, from other type of satellites, using them together to help vulnerable countries. Uh, and now we have uh, this international alliance. It's been, it started uh, during the uh, French Space Air Show in 2019 in its current form. And what we do is that we foster, we help, and we finance some uh, projects. Some, uh, and those projects are defined with end users, uh, meaning, for instance, we have this FLODAM uh, project, which is going which is now being presented by uh, President Macron to uh, his counterpart um, Kamala Harris at this moment during his visit in the US. It's a French-US project. And this project is about how we modelized the impact of floods on the uh, region and on population uh, around the Mississippi, around the Garonne River in France as well. So it gives a precise idea to um, elected officials there to how they have to adapt, make sure that the infrastructure uh, will, will not be uh, important or decisive infrastructure will not be affected by floods, for, ex for example. So this is just one example of the project. The specific, what is specific about the Space for Climate Observatory is that not only it is specified by end user, but also, uh, it is short-term. In two years, the project is over, and uh, the tool, operational tool, is delivered to the end user. But also, it can be reproduced somewhere else, thanks to this international coalition that we have organized through the, uh, through the, the Space for Climate Observatory. And it's dealing with flood, it's dealing with forests. We have talked about that um, earlier with the Norwegian initiative. We also have this deforestation monitoring system, uh, real-time deforestation uh, monitoring system in the, um, in the tropical areas. We have epidemiology projects as well because of climate change. But what is important is that we use, it's very much uh, oriented toward <coughs> and user and, and space uh, specific application developed by startups or already known companies. And you mentioned forestry. So Ola Morton, you, you, you had alluded to this earlier. Of course, forestry management is something very important to Norway. Tell me a little bit about how satellite technology can enable forest management, water management, efficient land use. How is that working in Norway? Uh, do you think in Norway or through the nuclear? <laughs> 
I will, I would first take about the NICVI project. So um, what we did with the NICVI project that we challenged the normal data policy from the satellite owner. So normally uh, you don't have a free and open data policy for satellite data as you have in Copernicus. So uh, with the contract we challenged that a bit with the owners of the satellite data. So we have got it more open and free that is normal for commercial satellite data. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, uh, the objective is to uh, fight uh, deforestation of rainforest, but uh, uh, we also want it uh, that uh, the, the countries in the rainforest zone can directly get access to the data and use it for their own purposes for other things. So they can use this for management of uh, forests, for farming, for they can uh, look after if something illegal is going on. So they can use it in a much more active way. And uh, it's also... Uh, one objective is that not a rich part of the world is telling the uh, rainforest countries what to do. They can also use the data for themselves and uh, yeah, adapt and uh, do things without us telling them. They can use the data and decide also themselves what they will do related, yeah, uh, based on the data they have available. Yes, certainly with monitoring this type of thing when you're using European technology to look at other areas of the world and rainforest management, I imagine there's political sensitivities there as well. Um, Wendy, when we're looking at the different technologies, what, what specifically can be used for land use management, for monitoring uh, forestry use, water use? Uh, what are the specific technologies that work for that? Sure, and I mean, we've mentioned what can be done for forests quite, quite a bit, so I'll stick to that, to that example. I think everybody loves trees. Uh, and so typically here it's a combination of uh, using optical imagery and radar imagery where you can be able to do all sorts of things from measuring, let's say, the height of the canopy, understanding the health of the trees as well based on the different what I call biophysical parameters that can be observed through the different spectral bands. And it's also about understanding the dynamics at work in terms of deforestation on long time series because what is also quite unique about this, these capabilities is that they, have, they are persistent over time. It's not a one shot of one image one day. It's comparable over long time series. And if I think of what we do at Abbas through, for instance, our Starling uh, deforestation monitoring tool, we've built time series that leverage both Landsat data from NASA as well as Copernicus Sentinel data combined with commercial imagery to really add value for these sensors over a 22-year time series. And from there, actually understand the dynamics. So we can see those dynamics at scale from space and understand what is happening. Why is there deforestation? What is driving the deforestation? What crops are planted after the, the, the forests are cleared? How does that evolve over time? And that can then help lead action on the ground in those areas of the world and raise awareness around that. But it's if I take also a step back from forest and look at other areas, typically what we can also do is, uh, I mean, flood was mentioned, that's, that's an excellent example. We're seeing more and more areas in the, in the world that are experiencing dramatic events such as floods and the landslides that follow. So here it's understanding the dynamics of the terrain. Uh, Ole Monten mentioned that, for instance, with radar, we can actually manage and understand land surface movement, which is now quite precise with radar imagery typically. So all these types of parameters are becoming more and more essential. And it's not just the before and after uh, aspect of all of this. It's how do we understand those dynamics and not simply that unique moment of time to, to, to build 
back and to adapt. I think this is what Laurence was saying. How do we adapt from that? And in the technology part, I've mentioned radar, I've mentioned optical. There are all sorts of other parameters from wind, from weather, from positioning. I mean, um, we heard about Galileo as well or geolocation. It's also essential sometimes in some monitoring cases to understand the geolocation and the specifics of that location. And here, perhaps, to give you a final example on agriculture, well, if you imagine a field of several uh, dozens of hectares of land, how do you guide, for instance, the farmer in using the best possible um, irrigation techniques? And you need to combine earth observation imagery to understand the specifics of the terrain and where, for instance, you might want to water the crops a little bit more. But if you can't locate that specific place, how do you do that? Or how do you guide the farmer and the machine? And in agriculture, that's particularly mature in terms of approach. And all sorts of companies are developing all these uh, all these solutions. I mean, we at Airbus provide a lot of imagery. We contribute to Copernicus as well. And it, so many different actors can come and play a very critical role in developing applications because it's not even the sky that's the limit. It's basically, you know, your imagination and what the satellite can provide for that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how much location is important there and how much satellites can actually contribute to people on the ground being able to get to the right place to solve some of these issues. Harold, you mentioned uh, environmental crime uh, earlier, and <clears throat> we know that you know there, there's monitoring to make sure that targets are being adhered to, and then there's monitoring to make sure that the law is being adhered to. Tell us a little bit more about how satellites can be used to um, monitor uh, environmental crime and, and how that can be used to stop environmental crime from happening. <clears throat> yeah, I think there are a lot of uh, good use cases. Uh, a lot of them have been mentioned. So um, if, it, if we go illegal logging, illegal mining, um, illegal oil spill, um, illegal fishing, uh, all these things can be uh, monitored. Some of them is, uh, are areas where time is not really critical. If someone is starting with illegal mining, then that's not done in an hour or two. That, that, that's something where you can analyze the data. Some of these others, if you have a ship uh, spilling oil, then uh, time is of the essence. Uh, and that requires a lot, of, a lot of technology because there is typically not one instrument that gives you that. You, you can be lucky and have a camera looking at it, and, and, but that's luck. What you typically would do, you would have a radar that would uh, identify that there is oil spill uh, on the ocean, and you would other instruments to figure out which ships have been in this position at what time. And, and these uh, data need to come together very rapidly, uh, both to have them downloaded rapidly, but also have them processed rapidly. Uh, and, and that's where technology plays in, because uh, you cannot just have a human operator watching thousands of images coming like a flood constantly. This has to be done by machine learning techniques and other advanced analytics. Um, and, and I think there is a, a point to also be made there. I think what we see here is that uh, uh, making these data available for additional applications, where you will have a lot of the new space companies coming in, they uh, add a lot tremendous uh, power into having more applications, having more use cases for using these data. Um, at the same time, we need to be realistic that there needs to be a governmental market to allow that uh, to happen. Uh, the person who uh, developed the camera 
also needs to have a salary. Uh, so either you could uh, have him have, have the salary by having someone paying for the data, or you could have someone paying for the satellite to come up and sharing the data freely to all those that can, uh, can uh, uh, make these uh, applications. And I think what we're seeing now is a combination. And I think this is one of those areas where institutions like EU and others can play a role in making sure that uh, we not only monetize for the institutional programs, but also make solutions that uh, journalists, that uh, new uh, software companies and space companies can take this. And that gives a lot more effect out to uh, prevent all those use cases in, in terms of environmental crime. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that follow-up question. Uh, you know, you mentioned the data has to be processed, but then the data, if it's an environmental crime, it has to go somewhere for someone to enforce that. Um, what are the next steps, and is there a difficulty when and if, as you mentioned, maybe the, the governmental authority that's in charge of the waters where an oil spill has been detected hasn't paid for that data or doesn't have access to the data somehow? Is that, um, is that a barrier in the actual enforcement of when an environmental crime is identified via satellite technology? Yeah, that would be a barrier because if someone is having that job, developing that technology or analyzing the picture, we need to make sure that, the, that he or her gets his salary paid. Uh, at the same time, we want as many as possible to, uh, to, to get use of the data, to make them uh, effective. So, so this could either be done if a governmental market supports it, or institutional market, or you could have more satellites coming up if the companies can monetize on them, but then they can't share the data freely because they need to monetize on the technology they have developed. And I think both solutions, we see both examples uh, these days. So Anna Harold is saying maybe the EU could have a role here. Um, is this something that the EU is looking at in terms of how to make sure the data is, well, that, that the technology is paid for, that there's incentives to develop it, but at the same time that it uh, can be open to all? Well, I mentioned uh, so far uh, space, the space program follows the open uh, data policy. Basically, anybody can use the data and on this basis develop technologies that then uh, basically market, puts, commercializes and, and um, introduces on the market. But indeed, the Union is, um, or the Commission is thinking about um, also another way of uh, supporting uh, the uh, space ecosystem in a wide sense, not only by um, uh, providing the data with the EU space system, but also by supporting the uh, players in the ecosystem uh, by uh, public procurement. So in the future, uh, we are talking about the, the next generation Copernicus. We want to upgrade the, the constellation. We want it to be fit for, the, for purpose, also for future challenges to develop new services. So one of the ideas is also to involve uh, private companies, new space, uh, let's not call it old space, but the well-established players, to buy services for them, uh, from them. Um, and uh, in this way, to involve them in building uh, the, the new constellation and to provide new services. This is also in a way uh, of helping the economy uh, to, to develop and to be innovative and to uh, find market for the new innovation. 
Laurence, how do you think we get this balance right, making sure there's the market incentive to develop the technologies, mm -hmm. but also making sure the data is widely available enough so that it can be actually used? It's actually very, it's actually very complex because the EU policy has been really original and, and it has brought to the world, basically, uh, tons of all these data that can be used. But they, at the same time, uh, the actual use of these data by, uh, by companies and uh, also by the people who might need it on the ground, less I was talking about elected officials or people who need to adapt, uh, is not that obvious. Space data are extremely complex. They are widely used by academic scholars, <coughs> scientists. This is really well done and they're used by them. But considering the amount of money that all the countries have put in this system, recently we just had the ministerial, uh, it's been mentioned by Anna, like a week ago, and it has been a tremendous success, almost 17 billion euros that has been put in space industry. So how do we make sure that all this money building infrastructure is getting back not only to scientists, or to companies making satellites, but also at the end of the day to citizens. And because that's what we're aiming at. I mean, at least at the end of the day, that it brings um, not only knowledge, but also services. And this is not that easy. We've been talking about public procurement, and that's quite true in France as, as well. We have a program called uh, France 2030, who's trying to organize that, the, the, the public, um, uh, just like public um, agencies or people like NES, for instance, can buy uh, some services and organize with the end users how it's going to frame what type of services to think about all these services before. Because we don't, I mean, citizens in the, uh, in, in the countries or farmers or agencies who might need those data might not even know they need those data. We know it exists, but they don't know what they can do with it. So it is, it is our job as public entities to try to organize this market and make sure that all this money that we put into, into space uh, industry is actually coming back to well, services to citizens. Um, Wendy, I'd be curious to get your perspective on this. Uh, how do you think we get this balance right between, again, incentivizing the development of the technology, but making sure the data is open and available. I would say that there's, there's a strong need for awareness raising around the impact <coughs> and the scientific um, aspect and the contribution of Earth observation satellite data for science is, is clear and undistributable and that's really what has even helped raise awareness around climate change. Uh, in the scientific community and it's about potentially reconciling the impact for the citizens and for the businesses and for those who actually work with the data uh, and to not oppose let's say the academic and the more operational perspective by really focusing on impact which could drive take up and if you drive take up considering the amount of interest there is right now in space the new actors who are providing solutions the um, the new procurement frameworks that are also being put in place, for instance, on, on the EU level, that will create an extra momentum. But if we keep putting space data exclusively in the scientific world, the take-up that we're all expecting in the other areas that are absolutely essential to drive change and to drive this green transition, well, we'll still be observing all of this from a bit too far away, in my view. So 
How do we communicate more about that impact? And there are so many different players who are actually delivering results that we don't need to basically reinvent the, the wheel, but continue the research and development and the scientific for everything that is going to be relevant in the next decade and so, but also be, let's say, humble in looking at what exists today to make sure that these solutions are also showcased and drive impact. And for me, it's also the, um, how, how can I say this? It's the ease of use to say that before, all this data was extremely complex to work with, but with the technology, for instance, that you were mentioning or that some others were mentioning on the panel, it's not that complex anymore. I mean, you can work with data. As I said, you can program a satellite from your smartphone. So the entry barrier to work with this data has been brought a bit down thanks to the technology. And there are lots of players that we are working with who have no idea what it is to operate a satellite, no understanding that it's pixels from imagery that are used. What they need is the insights. And all these intermediary steps in the value chain have fast forwarded thanks to technology. So there's a strong message around that. And on the open access and free part, uh, there is already a huge amount of data, which is through via Copernicus, uh, via contributing missions that are shared between parties who have a need to know or a need to access in the context of security. Uh, there's all the Copernicus core services that were mentioned. And uh, to some extent, like in all areas, if you want something absolutely premium, such as 30 centimeter resolution or highly upgraded imagery at 15 centimeter, which is top of the market, uh, that is not something that will be made available for free uh, in the near future because the investments behind that are so huge. And that's perhaps you're going to say easy for me to say from an Airbus perspective, but we're working with a lot of partners uh, that are new players in this field and they're chipping into this because they believe that there's a, there's a market. If you tell them point blank, guys, everything you need to do needs to be free of charge, there's no business model for them to dream nor to invest in this. So it's about finding the right balance between the two approaches and making sure that there is an attractive market because it's that that drives innovation as well. Harold, you wanted to respond to Wendy? Yeah, and no, I think that these are very good points. At the end of the day, we need a market regardless. Uh, we can't say that, let's say, the well-established should deliver their data for free so that new space companies can use them because the new space company also need a market. So if you're a new space company, you get the data for free, Still, you need to develop your technology, and still you need to pay the salaries of those who operate in the new space company. So you're just moving the chain one step further down by introducing free data for, for the new space companies. So at the end of the day, there always need to be a market. Uh, and I think uh, one of those markets that we, uh, is very easy to see would be law enforcement. Uh, and, and, and that is a, a typical governmental market. But I think in order to drive innovation, we shouldn't expect that the governmental market will, uh, or that the governmental institution will uh, sort of establish that market. Innovation typically comes faster and more innovative when someone creates uh, a market uh, for, for private investment as well. Uh, and, and my point there is, uh, I think we need both. So we need the institutions and the public-private partnership to do the heavy lifting because that's, uh, that's expensive. That can make data widely accessible. And then when you come down to applications and uh, the real insights and, and, and uh, these kind of things, 
then I think it probably has to be driven by uh, a private market, which could be governmental, for instance, law enforcement. Anna? I, in principle, agree with the many aspects raised here. Uh, I just would like to add uh, another uh, perspective. So um, I mentioned um, that the Commission works uh, together with the other institutions on revising the entire regulatory framework for energy and climate. I think um, many uh, user cases will be visible in one or two years when we have this framework in place. Um, let's take an example, for instance, of um, energy efficiency in buildings. We know we have huge building stock that is not well insulated, and we need to accelerate this uh, to achieve our climate targets. Now, one could think this is quite far away from satellite technologies, but it is not, in fact. Because with uh, Earth observation, first of all, the public authorities can better assess what is the state of the building stock, and actually with the upcoming national plans in this area, all authorities will have to do that. So that's already one uh, user case for which you will need technology based on uh, satellite space data. Then you need, of course, um, um, all the private companies that will take care of the better insulation of the buildings. And they, of course, can also use applications developed by market players to see um, how to better locate buildings, uh, what is their state, how to address the issue of energy efficiency, or for instance, is a building well located in terms of solar radiation to put solar panels on top. So you see, um, I think um, it's all true what has been said. Um, we invest a lot, uh, there is still a lot to be done to support um, the ecosystems and the companies by private and, and, and public players. Um, but I think um, space has a big future, and as we used to say in the Commission, space is horizontal. So basically, it has a, a user case in almost every single sector. Plus, on top, we are also aware in the Commission that uh, the, uh, let's say, development of, from a startup to well-established company on the market is indeed difficult. So that's why we put in place a Cassini initiative that supports the startups around, uh, along the entire development uh, stage of the company from idea to prototype to commercialization with access to funding, with um, um, accelerator services, with um, uh, matchmaking with investors and, and potential clients. So I hope all together um, this will help uh, the ecosystem in space and in other services to, to develop even better. Olemorten, you wanted to comment as well? Yep. I think we are in an interesting time now because we are on a crossroad between the old way and thinking about satellite and space and a new one. And uh, historically, uh, the end customer is the government. So, and uh, that means that uh, the objective is either science or some public good or something uh, other related to the governmental, uh, yeah, what the government is doing as a gov government. Uh, but I think what we see now that is also a new market, as you mentioned, that uh, where this uh, end user is not the government. It can be a company or it can be the person in the street. Uh, and uh, when we get that, then it's much easier to, uh, yeah, to make this as a commercial viable system. So we, even if we today are talking about new space, often new space still have the customer as the main customer, uh, the government as the main customer. And to get uh, 
really into a commercial setting, then we also need to uh, widen up uh, who is the uh, uh, customer of the services and data we are providing. Well, let's take some questions from the audience. We've had a couple come in. Um, first question I'm going to put to Anna. So this question uh, comes from Timon Bugadzki. Uh, to the European Commission, what is required to achieve European strategic autonomy in space? Very topical question, but I think it, it, it's something I was curious about as well because we've been talking about European technologies here, Copernicus, Galileo. Galileo in particular was very much built as something to, if not rival US technology, at least catch up. Um, so what is the added value to Europe having its own satellite monitoring here? Uh, and is it part of this wider effort that we have here in Brussels now for strategic autonomy for the EU to be self-sufficient? Yes, um, it is uh, part of this uh, effort, but here we are leaving a little bit the Green Deal. We are zooming out uh, at much wider uh, landscape. Uh, so, indeed, uh, I think in particular the, the COVID uh, pandemic and also now the, the war in Ukraine uh, demonstrated that there are areas where Europe is dependent. Basically, we use technologies that come from third countries and if a conflict happens um, or the geopolitical situation changes, suddenly we have quickly find alternatives. And strategic autonomy in space would basically mean that for certain technologies we are self-sufficient in Europe or that we have um, the supplier or sometimes even when we talk about links between space and security or space and defense that we will have the entire value chain in Europe and maybe alternatives uh, in like-minded minded, uh, third countries. So this is indeed um, a very topical issue. We work on this with uh, uh, our partners, with the member states. Um, we also, having this in mind, super, uh, support the development of certain technologies through Horizon Europe, the largest uh, research and innovation program, with um, priorities that basically are driven by uh, certain needs also in space. And we support uh, new space, again, uh, also from this perspective. Not only, but uh, there are certain technologies like semiconductors, uh, basically they are needed in all sectors, plus on top, uh, semiconductors, chips that we need in defense and in space, they have on top to fulfill certain specific requirements because they are used in different conditions. So, yeah, um, investment, uh, in research, in innovation, support to companies that think um, and develop the technologies we need and cooperation with partners, um, public partners, but also with the industrial partners. Um, Laurence, do you think it's important for Europe to have its own satellite monitoring technology rather than relying on U.S. technology? Well, cooperation with the U.S., especially today that our president is in NASA with Kevin Harris, I can't really say uh, that we want to be completely independent. We've been working together since the beginning of the space adventure in France, and cooperation with the U.S. has been tantamount. The thing is... Uh, we, we need to be maybe not completely independent, but we need to be able to, uh, to, to be sure that what we have committed for is actually properly done. And 
we can do that through our system. We're using, we're using other satellites and other type of data through cooperation, and that's fine. But at the end of the day, the research that we might need need to be resilient to whatever happened in the next, I don't know, decade or so. And the more self-sufficient we are, the more we ensure that we will be able to um, uh, to, to fight or to, to deal with the uh, evolution of, uh, of climate. But as far as we can and as much as we can, Europe has always been, uh, has always welcomed in the space uh, area and especially in science, international cooperation. So the more we can do, the happier we are. Harold? <clears throat> yeah, I, I think uh, strategic autonomy makes a lot of sense, uh, not because of rivalry, but because of uh, controlling uh, our own destiny. So uh, I, I don't think the, the, the main topic is to uh, distance from US. I think there is a lot of good cooperation. In, in my company, we have 40% of our business in US and approximately 40% in Europe. And, and we love working with both. But I think for Europe as a continent, if you see that we're getting more and more dependent on space capability, as we talked about. What we are talking about now is going to in increase a lot. So if you go whatever, 10 years down the road, and you see that in Europe we would really like to take it to the next level here, you need to have that technology base available. You can't be dependent on waiting for someone else to take the right or the same direction as you do. So I think developing that technology capability inside Europe makes uh, a lot of sense. Uh, and that makes us also a better partner to cooperate with the U.S. Let's take the next question from the audience. Um, Ole Morten, I'll put this one to you. It's from Johan Hammerstrom. Do you think that decision makers are utilizing the potential of satellite data when it comes to climate monitoring? If not, what do you think are the barriers to better utilization? Uh, yeah. I think uh, he's uh, uh, into something which uh, I think we have a challenge. Uh, we know a lot about uh, the Earth system and the climate, uh, but uh, it looks like, uh, at least in the public, there is a discussion uh, about is this true or not? And uh, from the scientific uh, community, they try to be really objective and they try to provide facts and the politicians can make a decision based on the facts. Uh, but we are in a situation where uh, maybe the facts is not so easy to get to the politicians and the decision makers. Uh, so I think we have to work on it. So we, in some way we try to push our information, uh, but uh, it's uh, not always welcome because uh, if we want to do something about the climate, uh, there will have consequences for people for ordinary people, and uh, when you don't like the consequences, you don't often like the uh, arguments for why you should do something. Uh, so instead of discussing uh, what we should do, sometimes we discuss, is this true or not? Anna, have you observed any particular barriers to better use and utilization of this data by policymakers? To better use? Better use of satellite data for <coughs> taking climate action. Well, difficult now to say. Um, what would you have more concretely in mind? Uh, if there's barriers that either at national level, at EU level, as the questioner asked, uh, for better utilization of the data in policymaking. 
I would rather see, but I am now talking from the perspective of a service of a commission that is really focused on, on uh, let's say, developing the space program and uptake of the data. We are talking mainly to our other colleagues in other uh, services to raise awareness um, about the uh, fact that we have such a wealth of, of data. And um, on the one hand, um, there is no obligation to use space data, but we try to raise the attention of our colleagues uh, that they can do that. And for instance, um, in the horizon calls in across all sectors, we introduced, um, let's say, a condition that if for a specific project space data should be used or are needed or would be useful to use, please use first uh, the data from the EU space program and not turn maybe to something else. Um, if you need also something else on top, perfect. Uh, that's, uh, that's also okay, but uh, basically raising awareness uh, that for many projects we have a lot of data that can be used. Plus, um, I think um, turning a little bit more to um, the use of space data um, and uh, space-based technologies um, in across sectors in private uh, in, by private users we also closely work with our agency the eu agency uh, for the space program in prague um, so they do a lot of outreach um, and also um, work together with us uh, on a market uptake uh, strategy so one barrier could be a lack of awareness of what data is available but there's work being under under Underdone, undertaken to uh, spread that awareness among policymakers. Um, yeah, sure. So uh, in uh, Norway, we'll have a conference in uh, May, uh, which is called GLOCK, uh, which is a, a global conference on climate, where we will have focus on uh, space as a tool for climate action. Uh, and uh, there we want to try to close this gap sometimes we have between uh, the uh, scientists and the uh, have people working with technology and the decision makers. So we will try to, uh, to get this gap a bit smaller and maybe it's uh, easier for us to, yeah, to get uh, the, uh, the things we want to tell the world to get it through to the decision makers. Well, another questioner from the audience, an anonymous questioner, wanted us to come back to, uh, specifically to geolocation and how that can be used. Uh, so the question is, the panel has focused a lot on Earth observation. Uh, Copernicus, what are the best use cases for precise satellite navigation through the Galileo program as regards contribution to current and future green technology? It's open to anyone, yeah? Yeah, I can mention one example in Norway. So, so we have a project going on in Norway. Maybe Harald knows about it. So it's uh, the Norwegian Yara company, which is um, a global company making fertilizers. So they are now um, have a demonstration with an autonomous ship, uh, electric autonomous ship, uh, which uh, they will use from their product fac facility to where they do the shipping of the fertilizer around the world. And uh, that will uh, reduce the uh, uh, number of uh, big uh, cars running with the, all these uh, fertilizers. Uh, today there are about 40,000 trailers going uh, every year just between these two points and that will be removed completely. Uh, and that's, uh, this is an autonomous ship uh, and that's 100% uh, reliable, uh, yeah, has to use GNSS and Galileo to, to be possible to do. 
Okay, next question. Uh, this question, I think, is best for Anna. It's from Aero Ailio. Uh, should we change the mandate of the Copernicus program to allow monitoring also in crisis or war zones? This could be important for environmental reasons. Well, <clears throat> that's a bit of a tricky question. Uh, indeed, um, we, uh, first of all, it's a civilian program under civilian control. I think changing this uh, basic uh, um, coordinates of the program would be a bit difficult, and we also expect certain, or expect well, observed certain uh, limitations um, in the war zones because uh, of the handling of um, um, classified information. But um, indeed, uh, there is thinking um, about uh, developing Copernicus um, and adding certain specific services, a little bit inspired by what we have in Galileo. Um, and in Galileo, we have public regulated service that is used, um, that is restricted, that is used by governmental um, uh, users uh, in security and defense. And something similar uh, for the next generation is being um, under reflection. Uh, now, we still discuss uh, the governance of such a service. Uh, it will have to be trusted by the security defense community. But probably this could be the future. We have a kind of related question. I'm going to put this out to whoever wants to answer it, but it's kind of about the international governance of this data and of this satellite technology. So the question is from Neri Ozer. How will it be made sure that satellite data is used for the good of people and the Earth and not as a weapon against human and sovereign country rights by public and private agencies with the money and technology? Is that being regulated internationally from now, especially by the US and the EU? So are there potential sovereignty infringing issues here, particularly when you're talking about surveillance from the sky? Um, would anyone like to, it's a tricky question, I know, would anyone like to take that? I, I can chip in yeah. since, uh, being both in defense and in civilian programs, uh, there is a lot of existing regulation uh, in the French context, for instance, from where we operate our satellites, as well as in the international context in terms of the access and the sharing and the limitations to classified data or what we call sensitive information, which also brings back to the discussion earlier about can everything be free and open? No, it can't, because sensitive information is, is governed by, let's say, the resolution, the frequency, the area of interest and such like, and the capacity to revisit certain areas. So this is what will determine the level of, of classification and governance is in place and there are national laws and uh, international regulation around that. When it comes to the sharing in the context of Copernicus, so for the emergency services, the security services, or what is done by Frontex or by SATSEN that also use a lot of data for uh, border protection or civil security aspects, those are things that aren't in, uh, in place and fully institutionalized with the right governance. And to come back to what Anna was saying, if there's a Copernicus security type, like all the assets are there uh, to, to, to use uh, the data and the assets, it's just the governance and the mechanisms to say this is on a need to access and a need to know basis. So how do we work with these circles of, uh, of trust? And on that basis, by ensuring that the data is in the, right, is in the hands of the right organizations and the right people, 
this at least should come up with a mechanism to ensure that it's not used for other purposes than the one it's been agreed for. So it's a bit of a broader way to approach the question. Thanks. Um, I think we have time for one last question before we go around for a round of concluding thoughts. Um, and I'm going to put this question to you as well. So this question is from Ida Jewel Solheim. To what extent can satellite technology be used by companies to ensure a sustainable supply chain and compliance with regulation, like, for instance, the EU Forest Directive? I think we discussed the user cases in the beginning, and forestry was prominently uh, mentioned by, by many of uh, the panelists. I think, <clears throat> well, uh, the use of satellite technology in this particular case, for instance, for the policymakers, uh, would mean to uh, change uh, the way uh, what and how we negotiate trade agreements. This could have uh, fit into the policy. And it would, of course, then have um, impact on, uh, well, the companies uh, and their compliance with the regulations, right? Um, so I think in this, uh, in this way it would be, uh, it can have impact and it can be useful. I would also like, if possible, uh, to add one, one remark to uh, what we discussed previously and uh, the use uh, of satellite uh, data and technologies, uh, well, the way we would wish it to happen or not. I think um, uh, talking from the EU perspective about the international landscape is, is uh, difficult because the Union is in all documents stressing that we are committed to um, peaceful use of space. And this is what uh, all member states and the Union is, uh, are doing. Now, um, internationally we have to also see what others are doing and uh, we cannot commit for others, right? We can lead by example. The challenge, however, is that certain technologies um, are developed and as a technology, they are neutral, they are value neutral, but they can be used for different purposes. We can have uh, in-orbit servicing technologies that are used for refueling a satellite. And this uh, has a contribution to sustainability. You don't have to put, uh, bring the satellite down and put it back on, on, in orbit. But the same technology can be used for different purposes. So it's uh, all about the mindset uh, and the commitment to the values and how we implement them. Well, before we wrap up here, I'd like to get some concluding thoughts from each of you. Just quick 30-second kind of key takeaway from today's conversation. So what kind of sticks in your mind about what we've talked about here today, the, the key thing that, you, that jumped out to you? Laurence, let's start with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, the key thing for me is, um, uh, I think Anna's just uh, mentioned this, is that we are pretty much at a turning point where, uh, with all the data we have, with all the energy, political commitment, and the development of key industries in that area, um, for instance, have brought to us Europeans um, an enormous amount of possibilities uh, to, to, to help our citizens, our communities to fight against climate change. But nevertheless, the last mile, it, what I call the last mile is the end user mile that we need to, this, this last trajectory, we have to make to make sure that all these data we have developed, all these industries, companies that are starting to provide services are really answering to specific needs. Um, 
and we want to, and that's what we're doing in the Space for Climate Observatory, we really want to raise awareness and, and to organize this ecosystem to make sure that the needs are coming up and meeting uh, amidst with the, uh, all these, uh, these data providers that we have. Paula Martin, key takeaway? Yeah, so uh, uh, climate is a, gl a global challenge and it has to be uh, handled uh, on a global arena. Uh, so we are seeing in the discussion here today that something can we do on a national level, but we all uh, also have to uh, have collaboration, either uh, on the European level or maybe also uh, with, uh, for example, US. So, so we cannot do everything ourselves. Uh, a small country as Norway, we understand that very easy. In France, they understand it uh, also. <laughs> so uh, everyone wants to have some bigger uh, yeah, arena where they can collaborate, and sometimes that also means uh, globally. Wendy, key takeaway? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a topic where there's an immense consensus about the fact that space is a clear asset for the green transition. And it's in the how we're actually going to materialize that to make sure that we bridge the gap between what happens in space, all the data, but also all the additional tools that need to be put in place at an EU level. We've mentioned forestry. There's so much regulation that is in preparation where space is going to have to play a role. So what are the tools that we put in place to have, a, let's say, a harmonized or a connected, linked up approach to deliver these results so that it's for the benefit of the end user and it's visible for the citizens? Harold, final thought? <coughs> Yeah, so uh, w we see that the space assets will be incredibly more important for the climate change going forward. There will be more satellites, there will be more instruments, there will be better uh, technologies to process. And this will bring transparency to the actions that we are doing and the effect of what we are doing. So we will be dependent on these space technologies to, to fight the climate change. Uh, and that dependency and transparency also comes with uh, uh, a risk and vulnerability. People can use that widely accessible uh, technology or data for bad purposes or for good purposes. That also need to be uh, managed. But we will be uh, increasingly dependent on the space technologies to, to, uh, to develop the climate change. And finally, Anna, your final thoughts. Well... <clears throat> From my perspective, space is one of the most exciting uh, areas to work now. Um, we see space as an enabler for many things, for the green transition, among others. And uh, we've seen all the contributions. Basically, space is present, or space-based services and data uh, are present and necessary for the transition in almost all sectors. So I think what we need is a private-public partnership to support uh, the uh, space companies and uh, to raise awareness how space can facilitate the green tra transition. Certainly is an exciting area and it's been a really interesting discussion with all of you when we're learning about what's happening right now but also what's going to be possible in the future and I think and as you mentioned uh, raising the awareness of the tools that are available uh, to policymakers, to companies, to everybody involved in the climate fight is, is really important. So thank you to all the panelists for some really great information. Uh, and thank you here in the room and also online for spending uh, your early afternoon with us. There'll be a lot more to come in this policy area. So stay tuned and I'm sure there's lots to talk about afterwards here in the room. Uh, so thank you very much for watching and I wish you an excellent rest of your day.